open your uh, Bibles to Exodus chapter 35. And we're just going to very quickly, you know, kind of sum up and close the closing chapters of Exodus, you know, as we finish this quarter. Now, next week, uh, you will begin a study of Deuteronomy. Uh, Brian Bain will be leading that study and that discussion. And there are sheets on the AV ledge, you know, for the study of Deuteronomy. So, you know, please... Uh, Remember that you know, at the end of the assembly tonight and stop by and pick up a copy for yourself. There is also a sh sheet there that he's left. If you want an electronic, an electronic format, you know, he asked, please just you know, you know, put your name down on that piece of paper that's on the ledge. and you, You'll see it as you go by. And so you have a hard copy you know, there on the ledge, but also you can have the electronic format, digital format as well. He just needs to know, you know who to send that to. So look forward to that study as, you, as we build actually on the groundwork that uh, you know, has been introduced to us in this study. And we go further into God's word and into his dealings with his people. And so when you think about in the last closing chapters, as you know in your reading and your examination of it, you know, what you have is pretty much you have now the building of the tabernacle, you know, all in accord with God's instruction. And so there's a lot of details that are found in a number of chapters that we're not going to take the time to discuss. And so, uh, but I do want to look... Primarily in uh, some things, and primarily in chapter 35, and then in chapter 40, and just mention a few things in between. As you think about the beginning of chapter 35, and what you have, once again, Moses addressing the assembly of the congregation of Israel. So he calls the nation together, and he speaks to them, and he gives them again God's commandments, you know, the ordinances of Jehovah. And that included, you know, you know, the chapters that we have before us. The instructions, particularly, you know, regarding to the items associated with the tabernacle. But I do find it interesting in chapter 35, as he gets into the you know, building and the making of the tabernacle, that he, what's recorded for us in chapter 35 as he says, you know, he says, you know, these are things that God has commanded, and God commanded a lot. But he doesn't reiterate everything here in written form to us. But we are told again about the Sabbath day. And I find that somewhat interesting that that's repeated. Uh, and of course, you know, there's a number of things that will be repeated throughout scriptures. But in the context of this chapter, why is the reiteration of the Sabbath keeping it holy and doing no work on the Sabbath day important in this particular section of Exodus. Why is that so important? He's not saying anything new. He's already introduced this. He has reminded them of this. And so why, again, in this particular section, does he, does he begin you know, the format by saying, you need to remember the Sabbath and you need to do exactly what I've told you, what God has told you, I should say, and uh, regarding the Sabbath, why is that so important in this context of chapter 35 through 40? What was some thought? Yes. Now, the job that is before them is God's work. 
And, and, it's, and it's going to be accomplished in, in a matter of months when you think about it. And so the feat that is achieved here is really amazing when you really contemplate the short period of time that this transpires. And so in, and so in the meantime, as they are getting into this work and as they are devoting themselves to this task, it's important for them to remember, as Brian brought out, that they remember the law. And just because you've got this work that is associated with the tabernacle does not mean you can dismiss the Sabbath day. And so even with the work that did before, they still had to, to keep the Sabbath day holy. You know, even though it's God's work. You know, you know, the making of the curtains, uh, the, uh, the making of the furniture, all of that is God's work ordained and directed and specified by Jehovah, but the Sabbath day still must be observed in spite of all of that. And I think that's why it's stated here you know, that they don't get so wrapped up in, in what is before them. And, and I think if you, when you look at the overall tone of it, I think you can see how they were excited about what, they, what was given into their charge. And you see that. You see that in you know, the contributions that they make. You, you, you see in the willingness you know, to work. And all that has to be restrained because it's now too much. And so there is an enthusiasm. There's a zeal. There's a fervency. And so it's important for Moses to remind them, do not get carried away in your fervency that in doing something good that you neglect this. So the one thing does not eliminate the other. And I think that's an important principle when you think about our call in Christ in holding up his will and his purpose in our life. That you know, there has to be spiritual balance. And one command does not nullify another command. And you've, we, you know, all of that's going to fit together perfectly. And so I think that's the, the primary thing. But obviously, it is a simple fact, it's one of those things they had to be reminded of. You know, and you see that later, you know, later you know, in the future, in their history, when they don't. You know, when they stray from the path of God and they are not keeping the Sabbath day holy and they are, you know, doing work on the Sabbath day. And that even, you see that even into the New Testament time period as well. And so he addresses the congregation and he begins, you know, here and basically saying, okay, this is the thing you need to do and you need to, you know, make all this stuff. But to do that, there has to be a contribution. And so all the material for the tabernacle was going to come from where? What kind of, what kind of offering is it going to be? A willing, one, a willing heart. A willing heart. And it is also called a free will offering. And as you think about that idea, as he starts here in chapter 35, particularly there yeah, in, in verse 4, he says, Okay, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded you. Take from a contribution. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as the Lord's contribution. And he starts listing all the different items. And so there's a lot of items that is going to be necessary to, to, uh, to make and construct and erect this holy tent for God. And he says, But it's whoever has a willing heart. Has that changed? No, has it? It hasn't changed at all. When God you know, calls upon his people to make contribution, you know, 
It has always been one that he expected and demanded and required that it be from a willing heart. As you think about, you know, in the New Testament, our instructions about our offerings or our contributions, and primarily think of 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, you know, when he talks about how it is to be done with a purposeful heart, and it has to be done with a cheerful heart. And so you have to purpose it, and you have to be glad about it. And that will only grow out of what kind of heart? A willing heart. And so it's interesting to think that way back here under the law of Moses, the principle of the material, the resources needed to carry out the Lord's work is basically it has to come from the Lord's people. And they have to do so from a willing heart. God doesn't want a grudging heart. You know, you know, he wants it to be a willing heart, a purposeful heart, a cheerful heart. Now, what, think about the Sermon on the Mount, what would hinder us from having that kind of heart? Think about perhaps something, some things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. What could hinder us from having that kind of heart. Worry. Okay, worry. What else? Covetousness. So, huh? Covetousness. So you think about you know, primarily Matthew 6. Matthew 6 you know, tells us we need to stop worrying about the stuff of this life. And he warns us about covetousness you know, when he talks about the treasure of your heart. And that we are not to lay up our treasures on earth, but we're to lay up treasures in heaven. And you think about, you know, what would hinder us from being able to have the kind of heart that is actually described here, you know, in this chapter and practiced by the Israelites. When you think about Exodus 35 through 40 is a high point. It is a high point spiritually for the Israelites. It it is one of the best moments of their history. When they are focused on the work that God has given them and they are enthused about it, they are zealous about it, and they have this willing heart to not only make the sacrifice of these gifts in monetary ways, but also over here, Bill, uh, but also just their time in their work and what's devoted. And so you think about how you know, their heart at this point, it doesn't last long, but their heart was on God. It kind of building off that point, the things he's looking for, you know, where did they get gold and purple and scarlet material? They, they didn't get it off of the, the Dead Sea floor. You know, they, I mean, excuse me, the, uh, the Red Sea floor. They got it from Egypt. You know, right. th- this, is, this isn't really their stuff. So they, they, if they recognize with a willing heart, God gave me this as part of the Exodus from way back in the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. It kind of helps with that willing heart. This is God's anyway, because um, I, I got it from Egypt. I didn't, I didn't create this stuff myself. So. That's a good point to bring up. And, and, and you think about how that's true for us today. And, and a number of our brothers in the congregation often remind us of that point. You know, and where, you know, when we think about our contribution or, and our gifts, and that we are simply stewards of what God has granted us. It's really not ours. You know, everything we have in this world. Now, there is work 
that we have to uh, do and to make attainment. But, you know, you think about that life and resources, you know, the ability to do it, all of that isn't our own doing. It is the Creator's and the Father's that it allows us. And so, yes, that's a good point. So if, if they are seeing that what they have is all because of God's deliverance and salvation and blessing, and that, that would contribute to this idea of having a greater willing heart and not feeling that this is my treasure, this is my stuff to keep. And, and that was not their attitude. And so you think about how we today can learn. You know, here's one of the good examples of the Israelites. And there's not, a, there's not many good examples as a nation. But this is one of those moments that this is a really good time. And it's something for us to emulate as we, in our own walk with God in Christ, try to have that kind of willing heart. That kind of cheerful heart, recognizing they were stewards of really of, of what is God's anyway. Uh, and so you think about another example of how this principle is, is taught and exemplified among Christians. Staying in 2 Corinthians, you kind of glance over to chapter 8. And it is here that uh, you have the examples of the Macedonian churches. And so that's the context. And Paul is using their good example to motivate you know, the Corinthians to carry out you know, the, the promise you know, the, you know, that they had made previously in, in participating, having fellowship in the ministry for the saints. So you think about in that context of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 in the examples of the Macedonians, clearly here, here, are, here are people who have willing hearts. You know, here are people who saw their stuff as not as their own. Here's people who purposed and were cheerful about what they were doing. And all of that ultimately... They were able to give so liberally in spite of their physical circumstances. And what are we told? Why? Why were they able to give so liberally from a physical circumstance that was not necessarily rich? What was the motivation behind it? Right. They'd first given themselves to the Lord. And you go back to the, you tie that idea with what Bill was bringing out. You know, and, you, and those two concepts together and, and how if we would develop that and sustain that and maintain that kind of thinking and that kind of attitude in the sense of, you know, it's the Lord's and, I, and, and I'm here for the Lord, then in a sense, we will hold nothing back, will we? And, and we should, in a sense, you know, we should have almost the attitude that we've got to say, okay, have to be restrained, you know, that we are so eager and so willing and so involved in being givers and not takers, you know, for the work of the Lord. And so it's just, an, it, it, a, just a great example to, you know, to kind of focus in on just some positives in, in regard to the nation of Israel here. And so he says, whoever has a willing heart, this is what you know, they need to give. And, and, they, and they chose. It depended upon you know, what they have. But there's another point, I think, to bring out that ties in also with our own kind of giving. It's in the same chapter, chapter 35, kind of glancing at 23, 24. And the expression I'm kind of honing in on there is just look at the beginning of verse 23. He says, okay, start, he's already said, okay, whoever has a willing heart. But then he, then he says, go, every man who had in his possession. And so it was, you know, 
Was God asking them to give something they didn't have? No. Does he ask us to give something that we don't have? No. And so the, princi- the principle is true in the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament. Yes, Brother Roger. We have an admonition to be good stewards of what God has given us. And also we have admonition and direction to say not to squander everything he's given you so you're to work so you could have means to help people who may be in need. Yes. So we have those two principles as right. well. And, listen, and I'm glad you brought up Ephesians 4 there, you know, where it talks about you know, one of the main reasons of our laboring is not just for the hoarding and for our own selfishness, but it's for creating the opportunity for us to reap the joy of the blessedness of giving. So we can you know, act in a way that is uh, uh, Christ-like, God-like, in helping others as well. So I think an important principle really, first of all, has to be willing heart, and secondly, what's brought out here, is every man who had in his possession. And so you think about all these different materials that you know, comes out of Egypt, you know, which, and so it's part of God's blessing them you know, and, and the prosperity that they had gained and what they receive at the end when they are delivered from that. So everyone had, had various resources, but everyone didn't have the same thing. And so everyone, you know, okay, whoever is, is willing and in whatever you have, God says, that's what I want you to give. You know, when you're willing to give from what you have you know, to, to meet, you know, the needs of this great work. And one of the things that stands out to me in chapter 35 is part of this was, now, okay, I have, I have a, a, a stack of bolt purple fabric here or, you know, I've, I've got a stash of gold over here. But also you have described in this is what the women did. So yes, they may have goat's hair, but that goat's hair has to be done something with. You know, goat hair, goat hair doesn't just automatically turn into fabric, into linen. And so the women step up here, all those who are stirred of spirit and, and willing hearts, talk about how they step up and they get busy spinning the hair so they have the fabric. And that's part of being restrained. Not only where they restrain, okay, you've been giving your stuff, but okay, y'all can stop spinning now. <laughs> you know, we have more than enough to do the work that we're to do. And so God, God does not expect you and me to give from what we do not have, but rather to give according to what we do have. Over here, Mike. One thing that stands out to me about this is God's not demanding and telling them you must give. Right. It, it shows that he's not just some ruthless dictator um, that governs his people with a iron a fist mm-hmm. or with a whip. He, he, sh- he still had, sh- is displaying that the people have the, the freedom of choice and, mm-hmm. and to make, make those decisions. And by giving, it, those, giving them those options to give of a of a willing spirit, it just shows the true type of God that he is and the loving God that he is, that he's not just all-powerful and demands that everybody mm-hmm. does, does everything at the crack of a whip, so to speak, but that he gives them that, that free, freeness to do that. Good point. Uh, good point to bring out, the idea of... And you think, and the, God, God does not want a heart that's grudging, and so he has to allow, you know, 
the opportunity and the privilege to make that choice from a right attitude and a right heart. Yeah. And uh, you, you can't, uh, you can, uh, you, can you can command love, but you can't force love. You know, love has to come from the heart. And, and, and God is seeking that kind of relationship. The, uh, one of the passages that, when I think about these two points of giving, one is the willingness and the other is what's in your possession. You know, I'm also reminded in 2 Corinthians 8, 12, where it's in that context, it says, you know, for if the readiness is present, is acceptable to, according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And so you, you see that same principle being expressed under the old law as well under the law of Christ. But there's another, when you think about another example, the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents. You've got you know, three, three servants there, and they're each given various amounts of money, of talents, not ability. That's not what's given to them. They have ability. They already have different abilities, and the, they put it, they're put in charge of money that belongs to the master, to the Lord. And in the judgment of, of those servants, you know, how did God judge them? Not, not necessarily what the end result, but what, what basis, what principle did he judge them? Or hold them, what standard did he hold them up to? The resources they were given. Okay, the resources were given according to what? According to their ability. Did they all have the same ability? No. They did not all have the same ability. That's why they got different resources. One's five, one's two, one's one. And so, as we often, in our study of that parable, we talk about, did God expect the one-talent man to produce the five-talent result? Is that what God expected of him? No. But he did expect him to take the blessing, the stewardship that was given, use the ability that he had to the best that he could, you know, to produce something, you know, and so he wasn't, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't being held accountable. Well, you know, you, you, you don't have the ability of the two talent guy, but that's what I expect of you. No, that's not what God you know, does there because God you know, does not demand of us, you know, to do something, you know, that we have inability to do, you know, and so he judges accordingly. And you see that in this principle here. Of, of uh, Exodus chapter 35. At the, uh, and so when you get into the chapter, at the end of the chapter, you, you, uh, you get to where you've got the, the two men, uh, Bezalel and Aholiab, you know, who are granted wisdom and understanding from God to do the work that is before them, but also to teach you know, this craftsmanship. And uh, when you think about that idea, here's God, God says, okay, Here's all my plans. This is my plans of the tabernacle. And, it's, and it's, there's a lot of craftsmanship that's going to be required in this. And once again, they've come, they've come out of Egypt as slaves. And, and, and what, was their, what, was, what was their work in Egypt? Bricklayers. You know, and shepherds. You know, you know, that was their primary work. Were, were they artisans by craft in Egypt? No, they were not. You know, you know, they were not engravers of gold and silver. You know, you know, you know, that wasn't their craftsmanship. 
And so, and yet that's what God's going to expect of them. God expects them to make this tent with all this different fabric and, and ornate you know, stitching uh, and weaving. And you got to make these, these, these pieces of furniture out of gold and, and silver and, and wood. And so God gave the command and he just left them to try to figure it out by himself. Is that what he did? No, he did not do that. And so that's, one the, that's perhaps for me the main point you need to be seeing this. Is that God gave him a command and he didn't expect them to be able to do it without the proper instruction and without the proper resources and without the proper ability and knowledge. And so he blessed these two particularly with understanding and wisdom as well as others. There's others under them that the passage talks about who are blessed with skill, and those people are asked to come willingly to do the work. So not only did they have to willingly give up their possessions, which they were given to them in Egypt, but they had to willingly come and serve and labor you know, diligently you know, day after day for several months to get this job done. And so you think about that principle and so, how does that apply to us today? And so, in Christ, you know, have we been given you know, the knowledge and skills to fulfill our calling? Now, someone, you know, now what are some of the things we have been given? Um, this is where you have to answer the question, because that, that, that first question was the easy one. You're saying, well, why do you need to ask that question? We all know the answer. Yes, God has given us the knowledge and the skills that we need to do, to do the work we've been called to do, to, uh, to fulfill our calling in Christ. So what are some of the things you know, that we have been given as a body of God's people, the church, so that we carry out the Lord's will, so we carry out the Lord's work? What are some things we have God provided us? He didn't say, okay, now you're a Christian. Hey, you're on your own. Figure it out yourself. What did he do? Okay, he preserved the word. And how did he do that? How did he preserve the word? Through whom? Through the Holy Spirit who directed whom? The apostles and prophets. Yes. And so God, through his chosen apostles and chosen prophets, guided by the Spirit into truth. All right? Now, what, is, what does Peter tell us in 2 Peter chapter 1, primary verse, th- verse 3? We often turn it, it's one of those familiar passages, you know, how we have been given everything we need for what? Two things. Life and God's. And what, we, what were we given? Go back to it. It's, it's linked to the point that uh, Nathan just said. True knowledge. That's what we've given. We have been given everything pertaining to life and God's through a true knowledge of him who called you. And so God, God has not just left us as his people, you know, you know, just to figure it out on our own. He has expectations, and the expectations are unto, for his glory. And, and like then, he has spoken now as well. He has given us the things we need. Um, the church, Ephesians 4. Remember, Ephesians 4 taught the church, the unity of the Spirit, first few verses. Then it gets a little farther down, talks about how... He has ordained some individuals. Who did he ordain? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. He ordained a number of individuals. 
You should be able to list these names, these groups. I'll give you first. Apostles. Prophets. Uh, what you say? Teachers. You don't have to get in order. Teachers. There's two others. Evangelists. One more. Pastors. Right. right. Those five ministers are ordained by Christ in the church, ultimately in a general sense to equip whom? To equip the body. To equip saints for what? For the work. For the work that we've been called to do. For the work that we, you know, God has assigned to us. And so, you, so God, yes, he demanded much out of the people of Israel. And he had this amazing task of, of beauty and glory. And he knew they were equipped for that. And so he blessed them with the resources and the skill and the knowledge needed to do the work they needed. And the same with us. We have, through the inspired word of God, through the work of the apostles and prophets, you know, through the true knowledge of, of, of God in Christ Jesus, you know, through the ministers that equip the saints in, uh, in the body of Christ. And let me add one more. Ephesians 6. You're in, you're in, you're in a battle. What has God given you? He's given you armor. You know, has He given you all the armor you need? Yes. All the armor that we need for the battle, the battles that we engage in, whether individually or congregationally, in this war that's going on. We have all that we need. And so God is not, not only, He's not going to expect from you something that you don't have. No, He's not that kind of God. But also, God is not going to demand of you something without giving you what you need to do what He expects you to do. And so we are. We, we have what we need to do. Even in, the, in, in, in this 21st century, we have what we need you know, for God's work. Yeah, Nathan over here. And so whether we're talking about your individual labors in the kingdom, God has given you what you need to do what you need to do. Now, he's not going to judge you, you know, by somebody else's ability. No, he's going to judge each of us individually by whatever our own abilities are, but we have what we need. He's given us you know, those resources. Nathan? I think in addition to those resources you just mentioned, he's also given us a family. He's given us right. each other. Mm-hmm. And with, within those instructions, the instructions are for us to lift each other up, to hold each other accountable, and things of that nature to where, yes, if we, we may have all the ability and even the knowledge and stuff of how to do it, but sometimes we may not have the exact desire or the um, urgencies mm-hmm. um, that's necessary, but having others sur- being surrounded by a support system to mm-hmm. either help push us forward or to help pull us back right. as we need it. Good point to bring out. Very good. Anything else to add on that kind of that thought? Well, at the beginning of chapter 36, you know, what you have is when, okay, the craftsmen, the skills you know, uh, men are, okay, we've got enough, you need to restrain. And so, you know, Moses sends out that proclamation you know, to stop bringing any more. But when you think about just that whole scenario, that, that, that tone, that atmosphere, you know, you know when, when you have a people who definitely have a mind and a heart to work, what that does, that produces zeal. That produces fervency. 
And when a heart is right toward God, then there's an eagerness to serve. And there's an eagerness to do for the Lord. And that's what's going on here at this particular moment in the nation of Israel. As they you know, are excited about building God's house. A dwelling for God. A place of holiness. You know. And so they're excited about that. And you think about that whole concept when our heart is right with God, when there's a willingness there, and, and how, you know, it's not like pulling teeth, is it? it it's, it's like pulling teeth when we're, there's an unwillingness. And when we're, you know, we drag our feet when we're unwilling, you know. And that's not what's going on here. But once again, when, when our heart and attitude is where it needs to be, it's not always. And so we sometimes got to, you know, tweak it here and there and, and refine ourselves. But when it's, what, when it's all what it ought to be, I think what's, it's expressed well in 1 John 5, 3, when talking about the love of God, that this is the love of God, that you keep his commandments. That's just part of the verse. Can someone finish it? And his commandments, and commandments are not burdensome. Right. See? The law and the expectation, the demands of our Father and our, our Creator and our Redeemer are not burdensome when it's a, it it's truly is a heart filled with love and willingness and desire and eagerness for God and for His glory. And we're blessed at least in this you know, moment in Israel's history to enjoy the refreshment of seeing that that was possible even with the Israelites, whose general characteristic is more often described as stiff-necked and, you know, you know, stubborn. But here they are not, and what a joy that is. Well, in verse chapter 36 and following, all, all, pretty much all the way through chapter 38, you've got all the different items of the, the material being described. Brian. I was just going to say, I think it's interesting, you mentioned this a minute ago, that these capital building projects have so often marked these, these high water periods of faithfulness. Mm-hmm. You think about this time and then also flashing forward to Solomon in building the temple and then going even further to when they come back and they're rebuilding the wall. Um, and I just think there's something interesting there about that connection when there is, when there is activity and busyness and how that so often allows us to focus our spiritual efforts as well. Mm-hmm. But it's when we aren't busy it's when, you know, things have slowed down and we don't have a very clear-cut task in front of us that Satan often finds opportunity. Yeah, that's a good point. And so maybe the lesson we need to gain from your, your, uh, your thought is uh, we need to make sure we always keep you know, a clear-cut focus on what our task needs to be in this moment. Good point. Anyone else want to add, you know, to, to some of those thoughts? Well, in the, you know, the remaining of these chapters, you've got, like say, the, the number of different items that are described. Uh, you know, I'm not going to take the time for us to really talk much about that. just want to just make a, a few quick comments. For example, about the Ark. You know, the Ark is also called the Ark of Testimony. Uh, and, and you think, why? Why was it called the Ark of Testimony? Yeah. Why would the Ark be called the Ark of Testimony? I think there are a couple answers you could have with that. Okay, it, 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 is, it is somewhat a, uh, a part of the story of, their, of who they are as a people. 
And what's inside the ark? What's one of the big things inside the ark? It's this, the t- tablets, stone tablets, which are, which are described as the testimony. So, this, so you think about God's word as a testimony from heaven. So that's one reason it could be called the Ark of Testimony. The other thing related to the idea that, you know, where would God, you know, you know, basically appear to speak to the people? And once all this is done and finished, he says, you know, where is God going to uh, appear and speak? Yeah, yeah, at the mercy seat. You know, he says, I will, I will appear to you at the mercy seat. You know, which is like say, you know, right there above, above the ark, between the cherubim. He says, and I will speak to you there. And so, and so it's called the ark of testimony. You think about God's revelation. And once again, the ark, you know, particularly you know, keying in on the idea of the, you know, it's standing for God, his presence in the relationship and, and God speaking from there. Um, another thing, you think about the idea of the lampstand. You know, how, how often was that maintained? How often was the lampstand you know, taken care of? It's a pretty simple answer. Huh? Yeah, all the time. Every day. It was kept. And so basically it was trimmed in the morning. It was trimmed in the evening because that light you know, was burning constantly. Yeah. Now... Yeah, you know, the time that it was not burning, it was when they were marching. <laughs> yeah, but when it was when it was once it was placed, the, the high priest would you know would trim it in the morning and trim it in the evening, and it was to be a perpetual uh, ordinance. Uh, incense altar. You know, how often did they burn incense? Simple answer. All the time. Every day, in, they're, the morning, in the morning they're to burn incense, and they're in the evening. So twice a day, every day, they're to burn incense, and this, what's it, and this incense was to, go, in a sense, go up before God. And, of course, the New Testament, the imagery of incense, incense is, uh, is compared to, you know, what? Prayers. prayers. And you think about it, you know, our prayers, how often should they rise? <laughs> every day. More than, you know, more than once. All right, well, let's kind of move on, you know, like without kind of too many details there. When you think about, you know, just the, the, the metals, uh, there's, there, there's really not any way that we can find the true value of the tabernacle. It's, it, when you, you know, try to estimate what is the value today, you, you can maybe find, but to really know, you know, it's really an impossible calculation. We don't know, you know, really what that value would have been. Yeah, yeah, but it was an expense that was an enormous undertaking. But we can we can somewhat figure out though, you know, best weights, the weights of things. For example, you know, you know, based upon you know, you know the gold, what that would basically be equivalent to is one metric ton of gold. They used one metric ton of gold. Now, a metric ton is more than a ton, about 200 more pounds. So that's gold. The silver, the silver is almost four. It's about three and three-quarter tons of silver was used. And do anybody remember where that came from? Where did the silver come from? 
What did the men have to do? Basically, it came from a, the collection of all the men above 20 years old from the half shekel. There was a lot of half shekels. Yeah, but a half shekel, and it was silver. And then you add to that the bronze. And you're, it's over, you know, two, over two t- metric tons of bronze. You know, you think, so th- that's just the weight of things. And so to, to, to take that weight and say, okay, what's the, what's the, what's the you know, uh, estimated value currency-wise to us? It, it's, just, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's just beyond us to really you know, understand that. But in, in conclusion, let's say time is, is gone for us. Sorry about this. But of course, of course, they complete it. They, they're able to do so you know, fairly quickly in a number of, of several months. Uh, and so because they're, they have a mind to work and they're diligent about it. And, but one of the things that runs through this that should have jumped out of you time and time again, whether it's through you know, what, was, what they're being told to do or what in describing what they did, that when they did it, they did it according to what? They did it to, to, according to God's command. And so time and time again, that is restated. Every detail. And you think about a people whose history, that's really not the overall description of them. But on this occasion, they did everything according to what God has commanded. Thank you very much for your attention. You know, sorry that I didn't finish, but appreciate all the comments uh, and look forward to our study in Deuteronomy.